what's the best thing that anyone has ever done for you? Think about it for a minute. I'm sure there are a lot of things coming to your mind right now. Maybe you're thinking of a time when you were in a, a terrible bind financially. And a parent or a loved one or a, or, a, or a friend or maybe even a total stranger helped you out of that situation. Maybe you're thinking of a time when you were in a bad, bad shape in a, in a physical way and a doctor or nurse came to your aid and provided you with the care you needed to recover. Maybe you're thinking of a time when you're in harm's way and someone put their life on the line to save you. But let me ask you this. Have you ever had anyone pay the ultimate price for you? Have you ever had anyone give up their life to save you? There was a story I read recently that I want to share with you about a devoted father who paid this ultimate price who made the ultimate sacrifice for his son. Listen to this report. On January 24, 2012, a devoted father sacrificed his own life to save his disabled son. When a car raced towards them as they walked together, George Tyson, 61, pushed his son Gary out of the path, on the, uh, uh, out of, the path of the oncoming car and took the full impact himself. He was killed almost instantly. His 32-year-old son was airlifted to the hospital and later discharged after being treated for minor injuries and shock. Mr. Tyson's distraught family praised him for making the ultimate heroic sacrifice which saved the life of their son and brother. Wow. What a... Incredible demonstration of love. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be on the receiving end of that? To have someone, husband, wife, father, mother, brother, sister, friend, or maybe even a total stranger lay down their life for you. Can you imagine that? I think you know where we're going this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 19. We're continuing our series through John. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the fact that someone has, in fact, made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Someone has, in fact, given their life for us. And we're going to explain why this act of self-sacrifice is the greatest, most selfless, most important work that anyone has ever done for anybody in the history of the world. So John 19, today we're going to talk about knowing Jesus as the crucified king. Remember we talked last time we were in here that Jesus was on trial. Talked about that in John 18. And when he was before Pilate, remember, Pilate found no fault in him and tried to get the Jews to release him, yet they refused. So he had him flogged, and he had him him beaten, he had a crown of thorns put on his head, he had him dressed in a purple robe, and had him mocked and beaten some more, hoping that would satisfy the bloodthirsty crowd. But when he sees that it doesn't, and when the crowd threatens his rule in John 19, verse 12, by saying, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar's. 
Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 27, that Pilate, in response, washes his hands of the situation. He says, his blood is on your hands, and he delivers him over to be crucified. And that's where we pick up today. Now, remember, at this time, Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, denied, tried, mocked, and beaten, and now he's being led away to be crucified. And there are so many things that John could have focused upon when giving this account of Jesus' crucifixion. He could have talked about how horrible it was to die by crucifixion. He could have described in great detail the horror and the agony Christ went through on the cross and about how difficult it was for some of his friends and his family to witness him being crucified. But we're going to discover this morning that John doesn't really go there. He doesn't really focus on much of these details. Though he could have selected and highlighted these things when giving this account, get this, instead, John shows his readers the greatness and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of the cross. So this morning, as I talk about the crucifixion, I'm going to attempt to do John's account justice by focusing on these things as well. As we talk this morning, I'm not going to take the usual approach, try to tug at your heartstrings and paint this vivid picture of the agony of the cross, though it was agonizing, no denying that. I'm going to try to preach it the way I believe John wrote it and the way I believe he intended it to be read and preached by focusing on the majesty and the beauty and the glory of the crucified king. This morning, we're going to discuss four ways. We're going to look at four ways the cross exalts the person of Jesus. First, the crucifixion exalts Christ in the way it fulfills Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture is a major emphasis of John in this passage. Notice verse 24. This was to fulfill Scripture. Verse 28, to fulfill Scripture. Verse 36, for these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now let me ask you something real quick. Let's just stop here for a minute. Do you think John's trying to tell us something here? Do you? Yeah, he's showing us that the crucifixion of Christ, though tragic and horrific, is all a part of God's plan. I want you to notice something. Though John highlights Four obvious prophecies fulfilled in this passage. There are tons more that are found here. I mean, Jesus' death in John 19 fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. Look at what John MacArthur said of this passage. He said, every Old Testament picture of the final sacrifice, every type, every prophecy about one who would die, it's all resolved here in Jesus Christ. So just the mention of Jesus' death here fulfills massive amounts of prophecy. So let's move quickly through specific ones because we could spend weeks in this one passage looking at the ins and outs of the prophecies that are fulfilled here. Look at what it says in verse 16. John says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, so they took 
Jesus. In other translations, it says they led him away. Does it say that in y'all's translation? They led him away? Think about that phrase for a moment. That's a short, seemingly insignificant statement, isn't it? But it's extremely important. You see, history tells us that because of the scourging and the beating of those being crucified, many could not even walk to their own crucifixion. And some of them, because they were so paralyzed with fear, they couldn't even move. It was not uncommon for these people to often be carried away or carted off to their crucifixion. That happened often. That was not uncommon. But notice Jesus wasn't drug or driven. He was led. He doesn't go against his will, but he went without resistance. Folks, that fulfills Scripture. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 7. You have Isaiah 53 in your spiritual growth guide. Read it this week and be blessed. But Isaiah 53, verse 7. Hundreds of years before this event, he says, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah wrote hundreds of years ago that when the Messiah goes to his death, he will not be driven, he will not be drugged, he will not be forced against his will, but like a lamb, he will be led to the slaughter. Look at verse 17. And he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. Notice the phrase, went out. Again, seems unimportant, doesn't it? Seems pretty insignificant, but it's extremely important. You see, that phrase right there indicates Jesus went out of the city. He went out of the city. He went outside of Jerusalem. You see, the Romans had a law that no one could be crucified within the city limits, within the boundary of the city. So those being crucified were led out of the city. Now think about this. You had the Jews on several occasions who tried to kill Jesus, did they not? They tried, to, they tried to stone him within the city, but they were unable. Why? Because Scripture is clear, get this, Scripture is clear that this sacrifice had to be offered outside the city. You see, Old Testament offerings were pictures of Christ. And one type of offering was called the sin offering. And in Exodus chapter 29, verse 14, you can jot that reference down. Exodus 29, verse 14, we're told, But the flesh of bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It's a sin offering. See, sin offerings were to be offered outside the camp. We're told this in Leviticus 4.12, and we're told this in Leviticus 16.27. We're told repeatedly that sin offerings were to be taken out of the camp. They were to be taken and offered outside the camp of Israel. Now, let me ask you this. Who's the ultimate sin offering? Jesus. Where then does Jesus need to be taken to atone for our sins? Outside the camp outside of Jerusalem. Look at Hebrews 13, 11 through 12 up on the screen. The author of Hebrews says this, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned where? Outside the camp. So Jesus also 
suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's pretty clear, isn't it? It's pretty clearly stated. To atone for sin, Jesus had to be taken out of the city. He had to be sacrificed outside of the camp. In verse 18, we're told that when Jesus reached Golgotha, there they crucified him. Jesus died a Roman death, folks. That fulfills tons of prophecy. Remember what Jesus said about himself in John 3, 14? He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is referring to his crucifixion here. In Zechariah 12, in Psalm 22, it is prophesied that the Messiah will have both his hands and his feet pierced. How about that? Again, these books are written hundreds of years before these events happen, hundreds of years before the cross. Also in Psalm 22, as the psalmist is portraying the coming death of the Messiah, he further describes what it's like to be crucified. He says, my bones are out of joint, my tongue sticks to my jaws, and my strength is dried up. Look back at John 19. The end of verse 18. John says... With him, with Christ, two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. Jesus was crucified with criminals, one on either side of him. And though we can look at this as being terribly unjust, which it is, listen, it fulfills scripture. Do you know that? Also remember one of them, trust in Jesus for salvation. That is a direct Fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, He was numbered with the transgressors, with the wicked, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession. He accomplishes salvation for transgressors. So here Isaiah is prophesying that the Messiah will die a criminal's death for the sake of criminals. He also tells us, Isaiah 53, 9, his grave is with the wicked. And guess what? We're not done. There's more. Skip down to verse 23 of John 19. John says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John comes right out and tells us here that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He he tells us that these men who were dividing up Christ's garments were fulfilling Psalm 22, right here. Beginning in verse 16, look at it up on the screen. For dogs encompass me. This is a psalmist, Psalm 22. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now let me ask you this. How do these men know to do this with Christ? Did they think, hey, Psalm 22, hey, let's fulfill this prophecy and let's let's cast lots for his garment. 
Surely you don't believe that. Now, chances are the, these men knew nothing of this prophecy. Therefore, they had no idea that their acts were fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years back. But you know who did know? God knew. And notice here, these men are making moves to fulfill his word. And in no sense is the guilt removed from these men. They are responsible. Though God is sovereign, man is responsible. So you have this group of wicked, callous, godless soldiers carrying out the wicked and evil act of gambling for and dividing up Christ's clothes as he suffers and dies on the cross. Yet, though they're carrying out this wicked plan, they are fulfilling prophecy letter by letter. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, as I think about the acts of these men in verses 23 through 24, I'm reminded of how indifferent men can be in the presence of the Lord. Here we have a group of them sitting near the cross. They have an opportunity here to witness the greatest event in human history, yet they're paying no mind to Christ, but they're gambling for his garments. What a failure. What a tragedy. You have tons of prophecy from several hundred years back being fulfilled left and right. You have Christ accomplishing salvation and they could care less. And we can often be this way as well, can't we? I mean, think about it. Right now as I speak to you and share with you about the incredible work Christ has accomplished on the cross and about the hundreds of prophecies that he fulfilled. Many of you are thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch today or the much-needed nap you're going to have this afternoon. Am I off? Am I off here? I don't think so. May we learn from these men and not do what they did. May we learn from them and not neglect so great a salvation as it says in Hebrews chapter 2. So this is, this is another key fulfillment of Scripture. And, and there are so many more in this text. In the following verse, John mentions something Jesus says that fulfills Scripture. And we'll mention that in a moment. He also mentions the fact that none of Jesus' bones are broken, which is another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And on and on it goes, and we don't have time to go into all of these prophecies. Time will not allow it. But something you might want to do in the near future is do a study on the prophecies that are fulfilled during Christ's earthly ministry. I gave you a similar challenge in your Connect card. You can read about it in there, about the, about the challenge of studying the prophecies fulfilled at his crucifixion but it's amazing when you look at it i read recently that there were over 300 messianic prophecies that were fulfilled during christ's earthly ministry and a mathematician did the math on this and he said the probabilities of 300 prophecies coming to pass in one man are one and 84 with a hundred zeros behind it seemingly improbable isn't it Yet it happened. All of these things came to pass. What should that tell us? It should tell us that God was behind it all. The only explanation is that all of these events happened in accordance to the sovereign plan and design of God. You see why this event, though seemingly tragic, is to be viewed as glorious? 
Do, do, you, do you see why Christ, though seemingly unsuccessful and lowly, is to be viewed as victorious and highly exalted and glorious? Listen, Jesus was no victim. This event was not the tragedy of his life. This event is the God-ordained, God-authored, God-planned and designed climax of his life. At the cross, Jesus is not the victim. He is the victor. So through the fulfillment of Scripture, we see that Christ, though crucified, is exalted. The second way this event, the crucifixion, exalts Christ is in the way it highlights his kingship. Look at verse 19 through 22. John says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In this day, when one was crucified, they were marched through the city streets out of the city where they were to be executed. And in front of them was a man who was assigned to carry a sign. And on this sign, on this placard, was the offense of the one who was being crucified. So in that day, if you were guilty of theft, you had a man carrying a sign in front of you that said thief. That was put over the cross. But notice in this passage that no crime had been committed by Christ. Because according to Pilate, remember, said time and time again, what? I find no fault in this man. So because he thought he was innocent and because he wanted to get back at the Jews for blackmailing him and backing him into this corner of having to send Jesus away to be crucified, Pilate takes this opportunity to take a shot at him. I'm sure he loathed and despised the Jewish leaders for what they had forced him to do. So he takes revenge against them, and he has written on Jesus' placard, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, I don't know this for sure, but my guess is Pilate loved every minute of that. This is one chance to get back at them. So he fires back at them with this cynical and sarcastic insult toward them, and it had the desired effect, didn't it? I mean, this got all over them. One, because the sign said Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth in those days was hick town. It really was. Remember what Nathaniel said when he found out that Jesus was from Nazareth? He said, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those from the prestigious city of Jerusalem, they snubbed their noses at the Nazarenes. So to say, to think that the Messiah was from Nazareth was, was preposterous to them. So they didn't like that one bit. That was offensive to them, but even more troublesome was the statement, King of the Jews. Now why would that bother them? Well, think about where Jesus is. He's on the cross. And Pilate is saying very jokingly and sarcastically, here's the king of the Jews. I mean, think about that. If this was their king, what does that say about them? See, because the Jews had questioned Pilate's 
loyalty to Rome and to Caesar and had knocked him down a few pegs. He thought he would return the favor by mocking and humiliating them by labeling this man who is crucified with criminals as their king. Notice Pilate goes out of his way, doesn't he? To make sure everybody gets the message. John tells us Pilate has that message written in Aramaic, which was the language of the Jews, in Latin, which was the language of the Romans, and Greek, which was the language of most every common person in the known world. So he wants to make sure everyone in and around the area and passing through was able to read it. And again, the Jews don't like this one bit, and they try to get Pilate to change it, don't they? Notice what they say. The chief priest says, don't, don't say he is the king of the Jews, but, but that he said he was king of the Jews. Now, that would change things, wouldn't it? Because one says that he is, and the other says he's an imposter. He's a fake. He's a phony, making false claims. But notice how Pilate responds at the end of verse 22. He says, what I have written, I have written. Pilate finally gets a backbone, doesn't he? And he says, what I've done, I've done, and there's no changing it. Boy, don't you know they just got all over the Jewish religious leaders. This was devastating to their pride. This ate them up inside to see this man who was in their eyes a crucified criminal being publicly declared as their king. But here's the thing. The ironic thing about this is, though Pilate was being cynical and sarcastic, this message that he declares at Calvary about Christ is absolutely true. It was true. The Jews had crucified their king. Pilate was exactly right. Think about it. Written on that placard in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek was the gospel. Because at the heart of the gospel, there is a crucified king. So Pilate wanted to strike back at the Jews, but he ends up declaring the gospel from the cross. And I don't know this for sure, but I, I, I like to think that this inscription, because it's mentioned right before the thief on the cross is converted in verse 23, I like to believe that was the catalyst that got the thief on the cross thinking about the person of Jesus. Maybe, just maybe, that inscription was the instrument God used to bring the thief on the cross to saving faith. I mean, think about Luke's account. You remember what he says? The thief on the cross says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your what? Your kingdom. Your kingdom. So the cross exalts Christ because it highlights his kingship. The third way the cross exalts Christ is in the many ways it demonstrates his selfless love. The selfless love of Christ is seen in many ways at Calvary. One way in particular is in verse 25 through 27. So get it. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Let's stop there for a minute. Notice there are four ladies standing at the foot of the cross. Question is, where are the guys? The strong, bold, courageous men. Remember, they were scattered, weren't they? They did not want to be considered guilty by association. So many of them were nowhere near Calvary. Yet here you have these four strong, courageous women standing for Christ 
at the foot of the cross. Guys, we don't have the corner, uh, the market cornered when it comes to courage, do we? Do you know that? It took courage, it took boldness to stand like these ladies did for Christ while most of the disciples are in hiding there at the cross. Thankfully, guys, one of us was present. Notice verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and his disciple, the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, that's John. Thankfully, guys, John is there. We weren't a complete loss, right? He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So think about what we have here. This is, this is really something. One of the, the, the ladies at the cross was Jesus' earthly mother, Mary. She's there watching her son die, and, and he, when he sees her, he has compassion on her from the cross, and he gives her a new son. Now, Mary had other sons. Remember, Jesus had other brothers, but at the time, they were not followers of him. So Jesus gives his mother a good, strong, spiritual replacement in John. Something else extremely significant here that we see is that Jesus, notice he is transitioning from being her earthly son to her redeemer. Listen, Mary needed redemption as well. She needed a redeemer, and that's what Christ provided at Calvary. And notice here the selfless love of Christ. While he's completing this work, while he's accomplishing the most amazing task in the history of the universe, while he's bearing a burden that no creature could possibly have endured, in the midst of the darkest moment in human history, Christ thinks not one thought of himself, but he cares for his mother and his beloved disciple. Hopefully that gives you a good glimpse into how great and how deep and how wonderful and how selfless the love of Christ is. Think about that for a moment and then, and then think about how you respond in the trials of life. Can I be honest with you just for a minute? If you're anything like me, when the trials of life come, you have a tendency to shut everybody else out. Am I alone here? Is, can you guys relate? When difficult trials come my way, I'll be honest, at times I'm thinking about me and my problems, not thinking about anybody else. Jesus gives us the perfect example of selfless love. While enduring the weight of the cross, he showed compassion toward others. So the cross of Christ, it, it, it demonstrates his selfless love. The fourth and final way the crucifixion exalts Christ is in the way it showcases his divine power. We're almost finished. In John's account of the crucifixion, he shows that Jesus knows what he's doing and is in complete control. Omniscience is a fancy theological term which just means all-knowing. And omnipresent is another fancy theological term which just means all-powerful. And these are divine characteristics. And these are characteristics that we see glimpses of throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and we especially see them at the cross. For example, throughout his earthly ministry, Christ was on a divine schedule. He was, and he was always on time. He and 
The Father are in perfect sync with one another. And one of the main reasons why is because He and the Father are one. Jesus, though fully man, is fully God. And a divine characteristic that He shows is being omniscient. Christ knew what scriptures needed to be fulfilled, what needed to be done, and when. Look at verse 28. After this, after addressing his mother and his disciple, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. Now, notice before he says it's finished, he says, I thirst. There's one last thing that needed to be said. One last prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. Before this work was accomplished, and Jesus knew exactly what it was. When he says, I thirst, he is fulfilling the last bit of prophecy before his death, which is found in Psalm 69. And the, the soldiers, under divine guidance, they filled the sponge of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it to the mouth of Jesus. And it's significant here that hyssop is used. Because did you know the hyssop branch was used? in Exodus chapter 12 to spread blood over the door during Passover? How significant is it then that it's used at the cross on Christ, the final and greatest Passover lamb? And Jesus knows this has to be fulfilled before his death. He knows what needs to be done and when. Why? Because he's divine. He's divine. Notice what else here, verse 30. After taking the drink, he said this, It is finished to tell us die. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Folks, that's not a cry of defeat. Christ is not saying, I'm finished. I'm done for. He's saying, it's finished. It's done. It's accomplished. It's a done deal. The work God sent me to do, completed. And then notice what he does next. This is so good. John says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He didn't jerk. He didn't so suddenly slump over or kill over. John says he bowed his head. And the Greek word used means to lay or to gently pillow your head. Then it says he gave up his spirit. When Jesus accomplished the work the Father had sent him to do, get this, he gently pillowed his head and he gave up his life. Remember what John, Jesus said in John 10? He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my terms. Listen, folks, no one killed Christ. He laid his life down on his terms, by his own power. And he did not lay it down. He did not give it up until all things were finished, until salvation was completed. And, and folks, there is very simple and clear application to be made from this. Listen, Christ did not give up his spirit until our salvation was complete. When Christ died, there was nothing left to do. The ransom was paid. Divine justice was satisfied. Sins were covered. There was nothing more to add. And I know I've shared this with you before, but one of the old hymns I love, lyrics from the old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. How great are those lyrics? There's nothing we bring to the table. Christ has done it all for you. 
He has accomplished your salvation. It is finished. There are many in our world today who believe that they have something to offer when it comes to salvation. They're thinking to themselves, you know, I'm trying my best to be good. Surely that counts for something. Listen, God's word says it counts for nothing. God's word tells us that salvation was completed at the cross. Therefore, you have to let go of any additional thing you think you bring to the table that makes you right with God. And you have to say this, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. God has provided an incredible way for guilty people like you and me to be made right with him. He sent his son to accomplish salvation for us. And that's exactly what he did. He's left nothing undone. And all that is required from you is for you to come empty-handed before him in faith and simply trust in him alone for salvation and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I claim. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would this morning. Let's pray.